Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 8, Numbers chapter 6. Well, Numbers chapter 6 consists of two major pieces. The first 21 verses establishes the office of the Nazarite. And then the last five verses gives us what has come to be called the Aaronic Blessing. Now, both of these subjects are worthy of being given sufficient time, and so that's what we're going to do tonight. Now, this is really the only place in the Torah where the Nazarite is referred to. But we will encounter the Nazarite in a number of places in the Old Testament outside of the Torah. And of course, we'll also see that it's still in operation in the time of the New Testament era, as Paul himself participates in a Nazarite ritual at the suggestion of James, the brother of Jesus, the leader of the Messianic Jews in Israel, as proof to other Jews that Paul approves of and honors and obeys the Torah, even though he believes Yeshua is the Messiah. Now, Nazarites figure into several important biblical stories. Samson, from the tribe of Dan. Samuel, Shmuel, all right, alternately described as an Ephraimite and a Levite. And some say John the Baptist, which I have some doubts about because he was a Levite. All right, but it could well have been. Now, some claim that Jesus was a Nazarite. But I see no evidence at all to support that, that notion and every reason to say he was not. All right. The main reason Jesus is sometimes called a Nazarite is a rather faulty Christian tradition that was born out of an error that's still prevalent. And the error is that a Nazarite and a Nazarene are the same thing. All right. Jesus is called a Nazarene, but that's what people who lived in Nazareth his hometown were called. Okay. But Nazareth had nothing directly to do with Nazarites. Okay? Let's read this entire chapter together. Open your Bibles to Numbers chapter 6. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, we're starting on page 152. 152. <clears throat> Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel... When either a man or a woman makes a special kind of vow, the vow of the Nasir, Nazarite, consecrating himself to Adonai, he is to abstain from wine and other intoxicating liquor. He is not to drink vinegar from either source. He's not to drink grape juice. He's not to eat grapes or raisins. As long as he remains a Nasir, he is to eat nothing derived from the grapevine, not even the grape skins or the seeds. Now, throughout the period of his vow as a Nasir, he is not to shave his head until the end of the time for which he's consecrated himself to Adonai. He is to be holy. He is to let the hair on his head grow long. And throughout the period for which he has consecrated himself to Adonai, he is not to approach a corpse. He is not to make himself unclean for his mother, his father, his brother, his sister when they die, since his consecration to God is on his head. Throughout the time of his being, Anasir is holy for Adonai. 
If someone next to him dies very suddenly so that he defiles his consecrated head, then he is to shave his head on the day of his purification. He is to shave it on the seventh day. And on the eighth day, he is to bring two doves or two young pigeons to the priest at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And the priest is to prepare one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering and thus make atonement for him inasmuch as he sinned because of that dead person. That same day, he is to re-consecrate his head. He is to consecrate to Adonai the full period of his being a Nazir, a Nazarite, by bringing a male lamb in its first year as a guilt offering. The previous days will not be counted because his consecration became defiled. This is the law for the Nasir when his period of consecration is over. He is to be brought to the entrance to the tent of meeting where he will present his offering to Adonai. One male lamb in its first year without defect is a bird offering. One female lamb in its first year without defect is a sin offering. And one ram without defect is peace offerings. A basket of matzah, loaves made of fine flour mixed with olive oil, unleavened wafers spread with olive oil, their grain offering and their drink offerings. The priest is to bring them before Adonai, offer his sin offering, burnt offering, and his ram as a sacrifice of peace offerings to Adonai with the basket of matzah. The Kohen will also offer the grain offering and drink offering that go with the peace offering. The Nasir will shave his consecrated head at the entrance to the tent of meeting, take the hair removed from his consecrated head, and put it on the fire under the sacrifice of peace offerings. When the ram has been boiled, the Kohen is to take its shoulder, one loaf of matzah from the basket, one unleavened wafer, and place them in the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated head, the priest is to wave them as a wave offering before Adonai. This is set aside for the priest, along with the breast for waving and the raised up thigh. Following that, the Nasir may drink wine. Now, this is the law for the Nasir who makes a vow and for his offering to Adonai for his being a Nasir, in addition to anything more for which he has sufficient means. In keeping with whatever vow he makes, he must do it according to the law for the Nazir. Adonai said to Moshe, Speak to Aaron and his sons, and tell them that this is how you are to bless the people of Israel. You, Aaron, are to say to them, May God bless you and keep you. May God make his face shine on you and show you favor. May God lift up his face towards you and give you peace. In this way, they are to put my name on the people of Israel so that I will bless them. And the current first couple of verses, we discover the first important attribute of a Nasir, a Nazarite. One becomes a Nazarite by taking a vow. Now, the second important attribute is that both men and women could become Nazarites. But I'll tell you now that as often happens in the Bible, things change over the years. Okay? The office of the Nazarite, who could be one? How long of a term a person could or should remain a Nazarite? What their obligations and duties were, and so on. All of that evolved over the centuries. Now, let me use that comment as a reminder that what that, that while what we read in the Bible is indeed the truth, that doesn't mean that everything that happens is God-approved. For instance, 
as kind of an extreme example. We read of the story of the Israelites building a golden calf and then worshiping it. The story is true, but did God approve of it? Well, of course not. It wasn't a godly thing being dealt with in this golden calf fiasco. Now, that particular apostasy was spoken of in the scripture as wrong. And terrible consequences were meted out to those who participated in the making and worshipping of that bull idol. So, it's not very tough for any reader to know that evil was occurring in that situation. But at other times in the word, we'll read about some event. But little or no mention may be given as to whether this was necessarily a good thing or a bad thing that went on. We're left to discern whether it was good or bad according to our understanding of the Torah. An understanding that we're supposed to already possess. Okay? In other words, it's assumed from our knowing God and his commandments and from our reading the context of the story, whether the point of that story is to commend a good act or decry a bad one. So what a Nazarite was and what a Nazarite did was not the same a few hundred years after its establishment as it was given to Moses here in Numbers. And what we read here today in Numbers doesn't actually match the way a Nazarite operated in Samson's day, nor later in Samuel's day, nor later still in St. Paul's day. That is not because God changed things, it's because men changed things. Now in Numbers 5, where we dealt with this very strange water ordeal, of the suspected adulterous wife, which, by the way, was a God-ordained command, I told you that shortly after the death of Christ, a very influential rabbi declared that this particular practice of the law, this, this law of the water ordeal, uh, was to be abolished. He abolished it. Now, was this rabbinical decision a reflection that Yehovah was changing something, abolishing one of his own laws, using a man to do it? No, this was a man changing something that he thought ought to be changed due to certain circumstances of the times that greatly troubled him. Now, did this rabbi do that with evil intent? No. In fact, from an earthly perspective, and maybe to a degree from a heavenly perspective, he did a good thing because the whole matter of dealing with adultery had become twisted and perverse. Men skated and women were persecuted for no other reason than men just got tired of their wives. And by declaring that they suspected their wives were unfaithful, they could get a quickie divorce and then be congratulated for their piety by the local Jewish Religious authority. Okay. In other words, the laws of adultery had become a legitimized fraud. Well, a similar line of evolution of practice and custom occurred with the office of the Nazarite. Now, I tell you this because some of you heard me speak in other lectures that there were two basic kinds of Nazarites. Perpetual and for life. 
Now, perpetual, despite the name, referred to a Nazarite who took a vow for a specific period of time and then was a Nazarite no more after that time limit was up. A Nazarite for life meant just that. He was born a Nazarite, he died as a Nazarite. Meaning that it was his mother that made him a Nazarite while he was still in the womb. Now, the thing is, there is no such commandment of God in the scriptures that establishes the office of Nazarite for life. Doesn't exist. We'll read about it in the Bible, but that just means that the practice existed. Not that it was a God-ordained practice. What gets established here in number six is technically what they would call the law of the perpetual Nazarite, which means that a person is a Nazarite only for a time and usually for a specific purpose. Now, I'm, I'm not going to be using that term perpetual anymore because it's so confusing. I mean, because to me and I suppose to you, perpetual means it never ends. All right. Well, why some scholars coin that term perpetual Nazarite to indicate a temporary Nazarite is beyond me. All right. The Nazarite referred to in number six is temporary. There appears to be no biblical contemplation at all for a Nazarite for life. Now, one good question might be, why would somebody want to become a Nazarite in the first place? Okay. The, the answer is generally that somebody would swear an oath to God. That if God would grant them some kind of special favor to them, such as maybe to cure them of a disease or to restore their prosperity, or if it was a woman, give that woman a son, or, or save them from an enemy, or all sorts of things like that, then in return, they would turn their lives over to God for service to him for a time. Now, it didn't take very long before a person offering to become a Nazarite became as casual a thing as making it part of a bet. All right. For instance, if that guy over there is at least seven feet tall, I'll be a Nazarite. Just that casual. Okay. We learn from Jewish records that sometimes priests would preside over the sacrificial offerings of hundreds of Nazarites at a time. So many people were doing it. Now we see Paul, for instance, in the New Testament book of Acts, joining four men who must have in some way violated their Nazarite vows, and so they had to be purified. Turn your Bibles to the New Testament, Acts 21. And we're going to read this very short section about that. If you have the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 1390. Acts chapter 21. Then we're going to read verses uh, 20 through oh, 28. On hearing it, they praised God, but they also said to him, you see, brother, how many tens of thousands of believers there are among the Judeans. And they're all zealots for the Torah, for the law. Now, what they had been told about you, and we're speaking about Paul here this moment, what they've been told about you, Paul, 
is that you're teaching all the Jews living among the Goyim, living among the Gentile nations, to apostatize against Moses. Telling them not to have a brit milah, a circumcision ceremony, not to be circumcised, for their sons and for them not to follow the traditions. Well, what then's to be done? They'll certainly hear that you've come, so do what we tell you. Okay? We have four men who are currently under a vow. Take them with you, be purified with them, and pay the expenses connected with having their heads shaved. Then everyone will know that there is nothing to these rumors which they have heard about you. But that on the contrary, you yourself stay in line and keep the Torah. However, in regard to the Gentiles who have come to trust in Yeshua, we all joined in writing them a letter with our decision that we should abstain from what had been sacrificed to idols and blood, what is strangled from fornication. So the next day, Shaul took them in, Paul, purified himself along with them, entered the temple to give notice of when the period of purification would be finished and the offering would have to be made for each of them. Okay, this is obviously about four Nazarites. And equally as obvious to the person who knows Torah, which the New Testament assumes its readers do, that this specifically concerns four men who have been defiled during their period of the Nazarite vow. We know this because what we see them doing is entering a seven-day period of purification that involves purchasing the proper sacrifices and shaving one's head. While shaving one's head was also a required procedure at the end of a vow, a seven-day period of purification was not part of it, as far as we know. We're told that Paul also had his head shaved and went through the purification procedures right along with the men. Now, this can only mean one thing, that Paul, too, had taken the vow of a Nazarite. Okay? It, it was not contemplated. Now, hear this. It was not contemplated, let alone permitted, that somebody should join others in these sacred purification rituals just to show sympathy or some kind of an act of unity with them. Okay? This was deadly serious business. Okay? What I'm saying is, this wasn't some act or, or show that Paul was, was putting on. And part of the reason that James the Just had Paul do this was because Paul was going to be walking around Jerusalem bald-headed, or at least with stubble, nothing but stubble on top of his head. A sure sign to everybody that he'd undergone a Nazarite ritual of some kind. Okay? Now, everybody knew what that stubbled head meant. All right? And so he'd be a walking billboard to the effect that Paul followed the laws of Moses. Okay? And part of the reason... Well, right, let me go to another fake place here. We'll even find a time, another time, in which, unmistakably, Paul is at the end of another Nazarite vow that he had apparently personally taken. 
In Acts 18.18 it says, And Paul, having remained many days longer, took leave of his brethren, put out to sea for Syria, and with him were Priscilla and Achaia, and in Kentria he had his hair cut, for he was keeping a vow. Okay. We can also know that a good many details were left out of this account of Paul and having his hair cut, because a Nazarite vow was supposed to, to end at the temple and the hair itself was actually to be offered as part of a sacrifice and then burned up. He had his hair cut in Kentria, not Jerusalem. Now, possibly he had his hair trimmed a bit, later went to Jerusalem to complete the process. Maybe in this era, rabbinic law allowed those Jews who were dispersed throughout the Roman Empire and had taken a Nazarite vow to cut their hair or shave their heads at some other location and then bring that hair to the temple where they would burn it. It's hard to know for sure. But probably a good analogy to what a Nazarite amounted to is that they were like the monks and nuns, so to speak, of the Hebrew religion. Unlike the Levite priests who were born into a lifelong service to God, A Nazarite was just any ordinary Israelite who made a personal choice. He or she volunteered to dedicate themselves wholly to God and unto his service for a specified period of time. But biblically speaking, a person set apart for service to God was a priest. So to becoming a Nazarite mean that that person had become a priest. Generally, no. A priest had to come from a very specific bloodline that descended from Aaron. Now, by all appearances, it seems intended that the God-ordained establishment of the office of the Nazarite actually excluded Levites from taking the Nazarite vow. This is implied by the opening statement of verse 1, of number six, which says, tell the people of Israel. This is addressed to Israel. Levites were no longer counted as among the people of Israel at this time. They had been set aside. They had been separated away. They, in fact, had just gone through their own separate census. Levites only. And later we'll find they won't even get their own territory in the promised land. As of now, this part of Torah, as of now, if the Levites were to be a part of this Nazarite office, God should have said something like, tell the people of Israel and tell the sons of Aaron. Something like that to include them. Now, we're going to find implications later on in the Bible outside of the Torah that some Levites apparently did take the vow of the Nazarite. Now, why they would do that is mysterious. This was probably another of those non-God-ordained changes that we discussed that occurred sort of spontaneously in Hebrew society. Or it was was perhaps that some tribes observed the law, others didn't, or it was that non-priest Levites, in other words, ordinary Levites that weren't allowed to be priests, 
Maybe they eventually got to the point that they were allowed to make Nazarite vows to be more priest-like. I don't know. Verses 3 through 6 gives us the main attributes of a Nazarite, whether they be male or female. First and foremost, they had to abstain from strong drink. It included wine. All right. There's whole separate words in Hebrew for strong drink and for wine. Okay. Strong drink is shahir, wine is yayin. Alright. And it's two different things. It's saying they can't be associated with any kind. So in fact, any form of grapes is off limits to them. We'll talk more about that in a little while. Second, they're not to cut their hair at any time during their vow, period. And three, they're prohibited from touching a dead body. What we find, in essence, is that the Nazarite, by means of his vow and his following these three basic and straightforward requirements, is given a status more or less equal to the priests, though a Nazarite is not a priest. Now, of course, over time, as tradition started to play more and more of a prominent role in Judaism, rules started piling up on rules about the requirements for a Nazarite. And as one expects of man-made rules and doctrines, the rules changed over time. So in various parts of the Bible, we're going to see some Nazarite prohibitions lifted and other ones added. Right? But these were not a God thing. They were a man thing. Now, two of these three attributes listed in number six, verses three through eight, are very similar to what was required of a priest. But if we look more closely, the Nazarite requirement is actually somewhat more stringent than for the behavior of a priest. A priest most certainly can drink wine. And in fact, does during some of the ritual, uh, some of the rituals, although he is prohibited from drinking wine as a beverage during the period that comes just before he goes on duty or as he's approaching the sanctuary. They don't want a drunk walk, walking into the sanctuary. Pretty good idea. A Nazarite, on the other hand, cannot drink wine at all. He can't even sample the source of wine, grapes. Priests could touch dead bodies. But they could, uh, rather, a, a priest in general could touch dead bodies, particularly if it was their deceased parents, but depending on their hierarchy, some were prohibited from touching them at all. Nazarites were not to touch a corpse under any circumstances, not even of the closest family. So in some ways, the requirements upon the Nazarite even approached that of the high priest, who was not even allowed to address the needs of his parents at their death. Yet in one way, the Nazarite had to do things in an opposite fashion to the priests. Priests were not allowed to have long hair, while Nazarites were not allowed to ever trim theirs. So the office of the Nazarite was quite a unique thing among the Israelites. Now, why this prohibition against eating grapes? 
As usual, we're not directly told. Okay, But some Jewish scholars think they know why, and I have to admit it sounds pretty credible, and, and it fits the God patterns that we've discussed in the past. See, Israel is often symbolized by the grapevine. Okay. The idea is that in every Sabbath year, every seventh year, the land of Israel is consecrated or re-consecrated to the Lord. Fields aren't to be harvested. Land is not to be tilled or weeded. And as concerns our study, vineyards are not to be tended. Not only must grapes be left on the vines to rot, even the much necessary for their health, Twice yearly pruning of those grapevines was suspended during the sabbatical year, the year that the land was set apart and set aside for God. So just as the Nazarite is set apart and set aside for God for a certain time, during that time the Nazarite symbolizes the quintessential purpose of Israel, holy and set apart for Yehovah. And the purpose of the Sabbath year is to symbolize that holiness and separateness of Israel. Therefore, just as the grapevines are not to be touched and no grapes harvested during the sabbatical year, so the Nazarites are not to touch or eat grapes during the entire term of their vow, however long or short a period of time that is, which is, in essence, kind of like a very specialized sabbatical year for the Nazarite. In fact, the word Nazir, where we get the word Nazarite, came to be used as the term used for pruning grapevines. So you see the very close connection between the requirement for the Nazarites and then the treatment of the grapes and the grapevines. Now, there are some mistaken impressions about Nazarites, so let's clear them up. Nazarites were not some kind of weird hermits that went off to eat locusts and honey and live in the desert like John the Baptist did. If the Baptist was a Nazarite, the locusts and honey he ate and generally the solitary life that he lived had no part of being a Nazarite. Nazarites had no special food prohibitions apart from not eating grapes or grape products, and they also still had to eat kosher, as did all Hebrews. Further, they could marry, so celibacy wasn't part of the deal. They were perfectly allowed to wear normal clothing. They generally held normal jobs and worked at everyday crafts. The thing that marked them as different more than anything else was that wild hair that came over time, because it got long. Otherwise, they remain fully part of normal Israelite society. Now, I have some serious doubts that John the Baptist was a Nazarite. And the Bible never calls him a Nazarite. The assumption that he was a Nazarite comes from his mother, Elisheva, Elizabeth, vowing that she would not drink wine while John was in her womb. And that she would insist that Yochanan, John's real Hebrew name, would never drink wine or strong drink, yayin or shachar. Okay. And the other assumption is because he was said to have long hair. Well, Nazarites weren't the only Jews in that era to have wild or long hair or 
that abstained from wine or strong drink. Out of the many well-known groups, there was one in particular that did exactly the same thing. They were called the Rechabites. All right? and, and we're going to find, the reason I bring them up is because we find mention of them in the book of Jeremiah. And Jeremiah takes some Rechabites to the temple and offers them wine to drink, apparently not knowing what they were all about. But they decline on account of their family tradition that they supposedly defend, uh, de- descended from Jethro, Yitro, Moses' father-in-law. All right. And part of their tradition included not growing grapes or planting seeds of any kind and that they must live in tents. So while they abstained, these Rechabites abstained from grapes, it was simply family tradition stemming from apparently unknown reasons. Essentially, they determined to live like the Bedouin. And other extra-biblical records indicated they allowed their hair to grow long. Well, by John the Baptist's day, many traditions had erupted. Right? And many groups and individuals were railing at this corrupt priesthood and this spiritless, hollow faith that, that many Jews were now practicing. And it led to all kinds of strange cults and reactions. And asceticism was on the rise, meaning that many Jews were forsaking the comforts of life and community and attempting to get closer to God by means of self-denial. The essence of the Dead Sea Scroll fame were but one of these many groups. And, and there's much evidence, frankly, that John the Baptist, at the very least, had a lot of contact with the essence. Right, and quite possibly was himself a formal member of the Essen community. Okay. By all accounts, John was an ascetic. He lived out in the wilderness and was apparently a very strange individual. All right. He ate a very restricted diet. He wore sackcloth. He never cut his hair. Okay. But we would have found hundreds of individuals, likely thousands, a lot like John. In, in, in their appearance in his day because that was the persona of many of those who chose this ascetic lifestyle now another reason to doubt that Yochanan the Immerser was a Nazarite is that he was already a Levite by ancestry and by the law of Moses the office of Nazarite was not open to the Levites this was not a disadvantage though Rather, it was simply avoiding needless duplication. Levites were already set apart for lifetime service to God, whether they were priests or just regular blue-collar temple workers. John would have been a set-apart Levite no matter under what circumstances he was born. The vow of John not drinking wine may have been more prophetic of Yeshua announcing that he would not drink wine after his faithful Passover until he drank new wine with his disciples more than an indication that he was maybe a Nazarite. Now, it may well be that parts of a kind of a modified Nazarite vow were employed in different eras according to different practices and not always necessarily for the purposes we find outlined in Numbers chapter 6. When one looks in the Talmud and the Mishnah, we find all sorts of different rulings coming from many different rabbis living in different times about 
being a Nazarite. Even Samson, in the book of Judges, who is described forthrightly as a Nazarite for life, actually didn't seem to pay much attention to the Nazarite restrictions of number six or anything else other than simply not cutting his hair. Okay. And he certainly did everything possible not to serve God till the last few moments of his life. So we have to be careful in assigning various biblical characters that would come centuries after the law of number six with the title of Nazarite in the sense spoken of here in Torah. Abstaining from wine or strong drink was not the sure sign of a Nazarite, nor was wearing long hair. Now the Hebrew word that we translate as as Nazarite is Nazir. And since Hebrew is what is called a root word language, that is it takes a word and then you change some vowel sounds and you you add or subtract a consonant, it it broadens or narrows the meaning of that word. So we're going to see several Hebrew word offshoots from the word Nasir, and they're all quite interesting in their use in the Bible. The base root word Nasir most literally means simply set apart. Later on, it came to be also used for the word pruned. Pruned, like a grapevine. So literally translated, the person who takes the vows not called a Nazarite, they're called a set-apart person or a pruned-away person. Kind of interesting. Whereas Nazir, N-A-Z-I-R, is a positive term that indicates being specially consecrated for service to God, the Nazarites must also be Nasar, N-A-Z-A-R, separated from grapes. Separated in the negative sense, as in a prohibition. Further, then, there is the Hebrew word Neser, N-E-Z-E-R, which literally means a shoot or a branch. It's the term used for the unpruned grapevine. But the term is also used to denote one other interesting thing. The high priest's glorious headpiece. That one with the golden band around it. As well as the long hair of the Nazarite. So when reading these passages in Hebrew, we see that there is this obvious parallel and connection between the high priest's head covering, his special ritual hat, The Nazarite's head covering, in other words, his or her long hair. So Nezer, Nasir, and Nasar. You see how all these Hebrew words work together to help us better understand the relationships between priests, grapevines, and Nazarites. And of course, of the Nazarites being consecrated and set apart for God. Well, verses 9 through 12 talk at length about the Nazarite, male or female, being made ritually unclean by coming near a corpse. Actually, just contacting the body of a dead person was not necessary to defile a Nazarite. Simply being in the same room with a dead person was sufficient to contaminate and therefore terminate the period of a Nazarite's vow, meaning 
that after a seven-day period of purification, just like what those four men and Paul went through in Acts 21, the time frame of a Nazarite's vow started all over again. So you can imagine how fastidiously a Nazarite avoided the dead. But over the years, the rabbis came up with several new defilements that a person could contract, causing them to have to repeat their period of the Nazarite vow all over again. I'll give you an example of this. Sometime not long after Christ died, there was a person named Queen Helena, right, who was the wife of a king who ruled over a big city-state up in Mesopotamia. She was a Gentile who had converted to Judaism. And her son, the prince of her kingdom, was about to go off to war. So, she made a vow that if her son would return safely, she would become a Nazarite for seven years. By the way, an unusually long period of time. He came back safe and sound, so she followed through to the vow of a Nazarite. Well, after that seven-year period was completed, she then went to Jerusalem, to the temple, for the typical rituals to mark the successful ending of her Nazarite vow. And some rabbis instructed her that she had not properly observed the Nazarite requirements, told her she had to start them all over again, which she did. Okay, But near the end of that second seven-year period, she became impure. We don't know from what cause. And so she had to do yet another seven years. So all told, she was a Nazarite for 21 years, but 14 of those was due to her fouling up. At least that was according to some of the rabbis. There's a phrase... At the end of verse 12, is quite interesting. Almost all Bibles will say, as does our complete Jewish Bible, the previous days, we're referring now to the time of the vow period of a Nazarite, the previous days will not be counted because his consecration became defiled. That's not correct. What the Hebrew says is that the previous days of his Nazarite vow will not be counted because his Nesser became defiled. His Nesser, recall, is referring to the hair of the Nazarite because the sign of the consecration of the Nazarite is in his hair. Just as the sign of the high priest's consecration is in his unique headdress, that special hat that's called a what? Anesser, same exact word. Now, among the Hebrews and the other Middle Eastern cultures, you see, that sounds a little icky, the liver and the kidneys are thought of in the same way as we today think of the heart and the brains. Did you know that? In other words, for them, love was not of the heart, it was of the kidneys. For real. Thought processes, thought processes didn't take place in your brain. It took place, took place in the heart. 
The liver had a lot to do with where your deepest passions were spawned, such as anger and jealousy. See, the hair was another part of human anatomy that was seen as very important to the ancient Middle Eastern cultures. Hair was considered to be the seat of a man's vitality and his life force. Hair in the pagan world was often given as a burnt offering to the gods and the goddesses. Very usual. Therefore, as the hair was thought to be the seat of life, then it was the hair that carried the defilement that a Nazarite might incur. It was in his hair. In the same way, the hair carried the purity of a person's life force. So when the Nazarite completed his vow properly, his or her hair was shaved off of their head, it was burned as a good offering to God because it was pure, clean, it was a holy thing to offer to God. The hair of a defiled Nazarite, on the other hand, was never offered to God. Depending on the era, it was either burned up in a common fire or it was even buried in the ground. Now, we get the full ritual process of the Nazarite who's completed his vows from verses 13 through 20 in number 6. And in a nutshell, I'm not going to go all through it, he brings the four main kinds of sacrifices. The burnt offering, grain offering, the peace, and the reparation offerings. It costs the Nazarite three lambs in total to end his vow. A reminder, by the way, of just how costly it is when you make a decision to set yourself apart for the Lord. And after having his hair shaved off, the ritual is ended with the words, after that, the Nazarite may drink wine again. The point is, he's now released from his vow. Well, the sixth chapter of Numbers, after speaking about the Nazarite, ends with this awesome, ironic blessing. Let's reread that together. Turn your Bibles back to Numbers, uh, number six, page 153. Adonai said to Moshe, Speak to Aaron and sons and tell them that this is how you are to bless the people of Israel. You are to say, that, say to them, Evarecha Adonai Yishmarecha. Yair Adonai Panav Alecha Vekuenka. Yisa Adonai Panav Alecha Bayashem Lecha Shalom. Now let me tell you something. Everywhere it says Adonai, alright, it actually says Yehovah. Okay, the name of God. And that's a very important thing for us to realize. That this blessing immediately follows the law concerning the Nazarite has always been a bit of a puzzle to the scholars. What is clear, though, is that while the laws of the Nazarite are speaking to but a few the ironic blessing is upon Israel as a whole, as a collective. This blessing was spoken each day following, following the morning sacrificial offering in the temple. Actually, this blessing is a very early Hebrew poem. 
Okay. One of the primary duties of the priests was to bless Israel. Yet, this blessing lets everybody involved, the priests and the people, know that the priests are the conduits from the divine to the people. They have no power to bless or curse. They can but speak and remind the people of what God promises and God does. You know, blessing in our language, the word blessing in our language, and in Christianity is a very broad and inclusive term. But that's really only because of our ignorance of it. Okay. Biblically speaking, blessing is very specific in its meaning. Okay. Blessing is God bestowing upon his people the things he counts as important and good for us. And when we look through scripture, we find that blessing generally consisted of good health, land, safety, sufficient food, and children. What also is interesting is that blessing, the actual word for blessing is a verb. Okay, It involves action. God feeling kindly towards us isn't a ble- isn't blessing. We certainly want him to have favor towards us, but that's not what blessing means. In the same way, love is also a verb. Love may be the most mis- misunderstood and misappropriated word, I think, in the entire Bible. Because in the Hebrew, love was not an emotion. It was an action. It's only in the Western Church of Gentiles that love has become a romantic, warm, internal, mushy feeling. Certainly, love has a very important emotional counterpart. But just as James tells us that faith without action is no faith at all, so is love that has no tangible action, not love at all. Would you want God to feel all warm and fuzzy for you, but not give to you tangibly what you need? You know, the good news, we're all in luck. Because for the act of blessing is the act of giving. And what is it that he gives us? It says here in the ironic blessing that he blesses us with, meaning he's actively giving it to us, Protection, grace, and peace. In Hebrew, it's protection, grace, and shalom. Shalom doesn't only mean peace. It means well-being in every sense of it. It means that God's near to you. It means his salvation has been made available to you. It means his sufficiency for you in all things, in material things, it means lack of war. I, I love this blessing. It sums up God's intention and attitude and his character. But notice who this blessing is specifically aimed at. Israel. This is not a blessing for the whole world. It's only for those 
that make up the set-apart group that he calls my people, Israel, and those joined to Israel. That's never changed. It's only that instead of joining Israel by means of pledges and oaths and circumcisions, one now joins Israel by means of faith in Yeshua HaMashiach. And that is the provision since about 30 A.D. if a man wants to partake in God's active blessings. So next week we'll get into Numbers chapter 7.